If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter number 7. Matthew chapter number 7. As somebody who is an outsider to 613, thank you guys so much uh, for being a church that is flexible with the pastoral staff. Danny is actually away this weekend and Paul slipped out uh, to be with his family as well. And that's why you're thinking, who is this guy? Uh, I'm just sort of the stand-in. But really from the inside perspective of being at the pastoral staff, this church is such a great church to work at. Uh, Just the, the consensus around the pastoral staff is we would never want to go to another church because working here is fantastic. And, and a lot of part of that, that you guys are part of that culture. So thank you guys very much for just for allowing that flexibility in the pastoral staff. We're going through a series through the, uh, through the book of Matthew. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is coming to the conclusion of the sermon, of the greatest sermon ever preached. And we're going to be sensing... Uh, that he's bringing concluding remarks. And we're just going to take a few verses from Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse number 7, down through verse number 11. And here's what Jesus says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So we'll continue with verse number 12. So in everything do to others what you would have them do to you, but this sums up the law and the prophets. Dear Lord God, I pray that you would help us to be encouraged by this passage tonight, that you would help us to be a people of prayer. We pray these things in your name. Everybody said, amen. amen. In high school, uh, I wasn't good at a lot of things, but procrastination was a thing that I was good at. And procrastination is actually a very demanding thing. Um, at, at first, you get all the relief, right? Because it's, uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to, you know shirk off that responsibility for a little bit. But then when it finally dawns on you, that now's the time. Like, I have to get this done, and I have a very uh, limited amount of time to get this done. All of a sudden, that pressure is on, and and you just feel it in your gut. You know, your stomach's tied up, and many of you guys at work have deadlines. and, And for me, the deadline comes every Wednesday where I have to teach whether I'm ready or not. And so we're familiar with just that pressure of, oh, no. I'm responsible for this. I need to get this done. It probably wasn't a good move academically, uh, but I think it's good theology. What I would do in high school is when I would get to that point where I was weighed down and thinking, I need to get this done now, a frequent response, or a thing that happened a few times, was I go, Mom, I need help. And I would go to Mom, and my mom was so gracious and just loved Loved investing in the kids in that way uh, and and loved sitting down with us and staying up until 2 a.m. for a handful of times in high school, you know, helping us even though we dropped the ball. Is it good academics? Eh, Maybe not. Uh, Is it good theology? I think so. In fact, I think that's what Jesus is saying here in this passage. Jesus is coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And for a lot of people, the Sermon on the Mount is really easy to brush through because it's sort of the, ah, I'm not sure it applies to me. 
I'm not sure it applies to me. This is describing, uh, this is describing life for some other people. This is describing what, what, what Jesus wants for only the people during his age. But as we've been going through this series, we've been saying that this is a description of kingdom life. This is what Jesus wants for his followers. And so with that perspective, with that background, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, it begins to, it begins to weigh on us a little bit. When we realize that Jesus is actually laying expectations on our lives that we are supposed to be like him. In Romans chapter 8 verse 29, it says that all whom he predestined, for all he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. That we are supposed to be conformed into the image of Christ. We're supposed to be like Jesus. In the end of Matthew... As Jesus gives the great commission to go out and make disciples, what he tells his disciples is that they're to go out and they're to baptize people. But do you remember what Jesus also says? You're going to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to be teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. So Jesus has an expectation that as a people, we are going to be obeying him. Paul said that we are going to be conformed into the image of Christ. The expectations that are laid on us in the Sermon on the Mount are for us. And just to sort of backtrack and and peruse through some of those expectations, we'll just start in Matthew chapter 5. We're supposed to be a people who are poor in spirit, who recognize our need for God. We're supposed to be a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're supposed to be merciful. We're supposed to be pure in heart. We're supposed to be peacemaker. We're supposed to be, we're, we are supposed to be uh, okay when people persecute and insult us. We are supposed to be salt. We are supposed to be light. We are supposed to not only meet the minimal requirements of the law as the Jews in the first century saw them, but to exceed those. Jesus mentions adultery. He says, you've heard that it was said that you must not commit adultery. And Jesus goes, I'm going to take it a step higher. I don't want you guys to lust. That if any man looks after a woman to lust after her, he has committed adultery already with her in, in his heart. And when we realize that those commandments are for us and we're living in the 21st century where lust is very commonplace and, and Jesus is still against it. It starts to weigh on us a little bit. He talks about anger. He talks about honesty. He talks about loving our enemies. Jesus talks about caring for the needy. He talks about prayer. He talks about fasting. He talks about not, not concerning ourselves primarily with treasures for this earth, but to be laying up treasures for ourselves in heaven. He talks to us in the Sermon on the Mount about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus lays out these requirements. And you would understand that that if you had all of those things uh, spoken to you in one sermon, you're starting to think, oh Lord, I need some help with this. Like, how am I supposed to bear bear up under these requirements? How am I supposed to live the way that Jesus requires me to live? When we begin to feel that pressure, when we begin to feel those knots tying up in our stomach, when we start to think that I'm not sure that I can do what is required of me, that's what this passage is for. 
Jesus says, when that happens, the, the solution to that, the way that you fix that, 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 that anxiety, that pressure that I don't think I can, is to pray, to ask, to seek, to knock, to realize that God is the source of our strength. There's a story recorded for us that after Jesus came down off of the mountain, he was with Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured before them. And he came down, he came down to his disciples. He comes down to them, and there was a man who comes to Jesus and said, I brought my son, I brought my son to your disciples, and your disciples weren't able to heal him. If you can do anything, do it. And Jesus heals that demon-possessed child. Later, the disciples come to him and say, how come we weren't able to do that? How come, we weren't able, how come we weren't able to cast out that demon? And you might know the response that Jesus gives to them. That this kind only comes out by prayer. And Jesus says, hey, hey, with God or with man, there's going to be some things that are not possible. But with God, all things are possible. So when we start feeling that pressure from, I'm not sure I can live up to what's expected of me, what the solution is, is prayer. And maybe you don't need the Sermon on the Mount to make you feel that, that, that tightness in your gut. Maybe you don't need the Sermon on the Mount to, to help you realize that, I don't know if I could, I, I don't know if I can bear up under this. Uh, many times, just the everyday pressures of life are enough. That there's enough pressure from work. There's enough pressure from our relationships. There's enough pressure from being married, from raising kids. There's enough pressure that comes from having to meet our financial obligations that many times we don't need the, the extra, the extra uh, pressure from the Sermon on the Mount. We already know, I can't, I can't stand up under this. When we feel that pressure, what is the solution? Ask and it will be given unto you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. When you feel that pressure, the solution is simple. We pray. We pray. Now, in this passage, Jesus actually never uses the word pray. He never specifically mentions that, 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 that he's speaking about prayer, but this passage almost identically is mentioned in Luke chapter 11 where the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, uh, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And, at, <clears throat> and as Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, he cites this passage. And so Jesus definitely has prayer in mind and he teaches us in order to be able to accomplish what God is trying to accomplish in our lives, there's going to be one thing that is absolutely essential. That's going to be prayer. If the life that you're living right now is possible without prayer, that, 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 you're, not, that you're not tied up and thinking, ah, God, I need you, then, then maybe we're not taking seriously God's commands. God has designed life so that we need to be reliant on him. That, that, that he is the source of our strength, the source of our life. He says in John 15 that without me you can do nothing. The solution to that pressure is prayer. There's two aspects of prayer that I want to talk about tonight. Is one, uh, I think this passage te- I believe this passage teaches us to pray consistently. Pray consistently. In, in this passage the three words that are used are ask 
and it will be given unto you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. And each of those words there, they, they require some repetition, especially the word knock, right? There, there, there's some translations uh, that in order to get the, the sense of the Greek, we'll, we'll translate it, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, because there's, there's, there's a process, there's a, there's a consistency to it. There's a, there's a sense that we need to be doing this uh, continually. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus teaching about prayer again. In 18 verse 1, Jesus told his disciples a parable. And here was the reason for the parable. To show them that they should always pray and not give up. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that there needs to be a consistency in prayer, that there should be an always prayer, and and that prayer should not be something that we give up on. Paul would write, pray without ceasing. In each of his epistles, he's always talking about churches that he's praying for. There's a consistency to prayer. The story that Jesus tells is, is this, that in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men, And there was a widow in a town who kept on coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me down with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he put them off? I tell you that he will, that he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus tells a story of, of a widow who is just consistent in her request. And if even this widow is answered, how much more will our God, who is not an unjust judge, quickly answer our prayers? The reason I think God wants us to answer, to pray consistently, is because when we're consistent in our prayers, we're reminded of how much we need God. Because it's really easy to, to have that, to have that uh, sense of needing God. Uh, of, I need this. God, I need you to come through here. God, I'm not able to bear up under this. And if the, and if the solution was simply to pray one time, and say, hey, that's, that's taken care of, and I can walk away from that, I think our, at least my mind, would get really quickly drawn back to the, drawn back to the, oh, I need to take care of this. I need to fix this. I, I, I need to get a solution for this. And so Jesus gives us a gracious reminder to consistently pray. For so many years coming to this passage, when I, hear, when I would hear preachers talk about consistent prayer, I would get so guilty, right? Because I wasn't consistent, because I wasn't, because, because like my prayer life was, you know, just not the way that I, I felt like a man of God should be. But I don't think Jesus is trying to weigh us down with a, with a request here for us to be consistent in prayer. He's saying, you're not gonna bother me. You're, you're, you're not gonna frustrate me. 
You can keep coming with that request. Every time that stomach tenses up, every time you think of that person in your life that you're not able to get along with, every time you sense that, God, I need you in this, regardless of how many times that that sensation has come up, we can go to God every time. It's not a, it's not a pray consistently or else. It's a you can pray as much as you want. It's a Hebrews 4 kind of a prayer that we have a God who has been tempted like we have been tempted. And because of that, we can come into the throne of grace with boldness, knowing that God cares for us, that we can come before God and say, God, I'm here again. We're the same request and I'm, I'm consistent with it. And that's something that God desires. That is something that he that he asks us to do in Matthew chapter seven. I have kids, I have three kids. And I feel like specifically this passage mentions children in verses uh, nine and 10. Uh, And and so I think Jesus has has kids in mind when he's talking about asking, when he's talking about seeking, when he's talking about knocking. And I just have, I have in my my mind as I've been preparing this message, uh, what my kids do every morning. You know, dad, I'm hungry. And then if I'm not standing in the kitchen, you know, they just sort of holler that. They just sort of wander into the kitchen, you know, where this is, this is where I'm supposed to be fed. And they just let us know, like, hey, uh, I want bacon and eggs this morning. And if, if we're not in the kitchen, right, it's, all right, well, I'm going to go find them out. I'm going to hunt this guy down. I'm going to let him know, hey, it's bacon and eggs time, Dad. Come on, what's going on? And, and every once in a while, I'll be showering or I'll be in the bathroom. And I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get like five minutes by myself. Leave me alone. Uh, and what do they do? They come up to the door and, Dad, come on. Come on, and there's just a sense, there's a sense that God's trying to teach us to do what kids naturally do. Go to their heavenly father, asking, seeking, knocking, consistently telling him, I need you, so that we remind ourselves, I need God. I can't do this on my own. If I try out of my own effort, I won't make it. I won't be able to bear up under this. With, with my strength, I don't think it's possible, but with God, all things are possible. Not only do we need to be praying consistently, but we also need to be praying expectantly. We need to be praying expectantly, expecting that God is going to answer our prayers. I love, I love how definite these verses are. Ask and it will be given unto you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks received and everyone who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus comes and says, I want you to ask in such a way that you are expecting me to answer. Act expectantly. And I think one of the reasons that we don't ask consistently is because we don't expect God to answer, right? And one of the reasons that we can pray more consistently is if we genuinely expect God to answer. The reason that my kids frequently will say, hey, dad, where's breakfast? Where's breakfast? Where's breakfast? Is because I'm the type of dad who provides my kids breakfast, right? Like if I, if I didn't give my kids breakfast, they'd be like, all right, I'm going to figure this out myself. But because I do provide for my children, they know that, hey, this is, this is something that I can ask for. We can, act, we can ask expecting God to answer our prayers. I love, I love two things about, uh, about this passage. One, I, I love how it describes it in a father-child relationship. That, that the way that God is going to answer our prayers 
is the way that, that a parent answers the, answers the requests of children. And then not only, not only does it frame it in a, a child-parent relationship, but it also frames it with this, with a final conclusion of God's goodness. Of, hey, if even, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who asks? And, and so the two things that, that Jesus teaches in this passage are like, or, or surrounding this idea that the way that God answers our prayer is much like a parent answers a child. And then more importantly, the, the, the final conclusion where everything lands, that the main point of this passage is that God is good. That God is good. I think these two, these two ideas are so clarifying in, in a doctrine of prayer. Because there's a lot of questions when it comes to prayer, aren't there? There's, there's a lot of questions of, of how it all works and, and does, does praying like prove or disprove Christianity? Like what prayers get answers, what prayers don't get answered? And for many of us, it's very, very personal, right? We, either a prayer gets answered and, and we're on fire for God and we're, we're all in or else a prayer doesn't get answered and we're frustrated and we're angry. But I love how this passage frames it. It's as a parent answers a child. Am I going to give everything that my child asks? Of course not. I am going to give what in my power, I am what, what I think is best for my child. And every parent knows that instinct of, I am going to give you what's best, even if it's not what you're asking for. That if my kids thought they would get gummy bears for breakfast every morning, they might ask for gummy bears, but I'm not going to give them gummy bears, right? Because I love my kids too much to do that for them. So in the same way, Jesus says, the way that prayer is answered is just that sometimes God knows more than we do. Like I said, this is very, very personal. But I think when we are able to arrive at the conclusion that God is good, it infuses our prayer with so, so much more vitality, so much life. Back in Easter, we found out that my mom had cancer. And, and we started praying. We, we started praying that, God, you would do something amazing. And he did. And, and, and God uh, provided uh, some good doctors, some good tests. And, and my mom's lung cancer has gone from the size of a tennis ball in her lungs down to a size of a quarter. And they're hoping by at the end of the summer, they'll be able to operate. Mom will be cancer-free, which from the time in Easter to now, all of us kids are thinking, Wow, God is good. God answers prayer. And that's amazing. Austin Foxworthy, my good friend over in, uh, in the child children's program right now, over in the uh, base camp, his dad wasn't so lucky. That his dad got cancer years ago. And his dad passed away. And when we're dealing with prayer, we have to deal with both of those things. God, how does that work? How, how, how does that make sense? How does, how does one parent, how is one parent able to see uh, their kids get married and the other parent not? How does that work? And, and God doesn't try to sort it all out. He just says, I want you to understand one thing, that I'm a good dad. 
and I am going to give you maybe not what you want, but what you need. What fits into my sovereign will. And somewhere in that mix, he, somewhere in that mix, prayer affects, affects how God works. We don't know exactly. It's this, it's this awesome mystery that our prayers affect the sovereign will of God. God is in control in everything that he does, but he allows prayer to, to affect the way that he judges and rules the world. How that works out, I'm not sure. But he asks us to pray. And he asks us to pray because he is good. Here's why I pray. I have a lot of questions. I, there's, I, I think just from being raised in the church and not wanting to be, not wanting to just buy in without questioning, I, prayer's been something that I just I have a lot of questions about. And so I'm thinking, God, sometimes you answer prayer, sometimes you don't answer prayer, and sometimes there's really good prayer requests that you don't answer, and sometimes it seems like people who are just, you know, praying for silly things or even their prayers answered. So what is, what, what, what's up with prayer? And here's where I've landed for why I pray. I know that God is good. I know that because historically Jesus died and he resurrected. And I know that he did that to secure my salvation. I know that God is good. That even when I push him away, he is pursuing after me. That God is good. And as a good God, he says, here's what I want you to do. Ask. Seek. Knock. Throughout the Bible... There have been so many examples of people who have prayed. Uh, in James chapter 5, it speaks about Elijah. Elijah, in the way that James describes it, who's a man with like passions as us, prayed and for two and a half years, the skies were closed from rain and he prays again and rain came to the land of Israel. That even the heavens were were. were in some way affected by the prayer of Elijah. There's a story in Isaiah of King Hezekiah, a Jewish king over the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, where God sent, God sent a messenger to him and said, uh, Hezekiah, you're going to die. And Hezekiah falls down on his face before God and he prays. And God says, because you prayed, I'm going to extend your life 15 years. And so God answers Prayer. The Bible speaks of Daniel who three times a day would go into his room and pray. And even though there was a law saying that you cannot pray to anyone except the king of Babylon, Daniel continues to pray. Jesus was known to pray that early in the morning, going off into a solitary place, the Bible prays, that, that the Bible says, and Jesus went there to pray. That Jesus was often called to the garden of Gethsemane, that it wasn't just the last night of his life that he was there, but consistently Jesus cultivated a life of prayer. I want to encourage us this evening to pray. There's a, there's a man who was born in 1805. His name, I'm drawing a blank right now. His name's George Mueller. George Mueller was born in 1805. He was actually born in Prussia, uh, but after after a sort of reckless youth, he got saved. He got saved in the evangelical service. And the thing that impressed him about the service is that they began, they began their service with prayer. And as he 
got saved, there was just a genuine working of God in his heart that he wanted to see God glorified through prayer. When, when he was established as a pastor, he decided that he was going to do away with receiving his 55 pound a month salary and instead only live off of the, the offerings that people voluntarily gave. He also stopped selling pews. What people would do in the early 19th century was they would have pews that would be reserved and if you wanted to sit in that pew, you'd have to pay for it. And I mean, that's, that makes a lot of sense, right? You just have to pay for that seat. And George said, that really seems like we're trying to sell seats in church and he stopped doing that. And he decided that he was going to live trying to prove that God could be relied on in prayer. It seemed that God was, God uh, began working in George's life to begin orphan houses. And so he modified his house there in the, uh, in the central city, uh, or there in the downtown Bristol. And he initially took 30 homeless, 30 orphan girls into his house and just began ministering to 30 girls. Eventually, he brought the apartment next door and bought the apartment next door until he was hosting 300 students uh, in Bristol without requiring, without asking for money. His thing was he wanted to show what God could do without publicly asking for money. And so he did all of his work simply praying that God would bring the people that needed to work in the orphanages and the people who had the financial means in order to support the orphanages, that God would do the work. And so he prayed and God, God brought what was needed for the orphanage. There's a, there's a story that one day they were out of food that there was no food for the orphans to eat. And it seemed, really seems like something out of a movie, but uh, Mueller brings all of the students in, sits the 300 students down, and he begins to pray and he thanks God for the food that wasn't there. At that moment, there's a knock at the door and a baker comes to him and says, I have no idea why, but I've been up all night baking because God said, you guys were gonna need bread. And he's like, all right, so we got bread. And then as they were serving the bread, uh, there's another knock at the door and, and, and George Mueller comes to the door and it, the milkman says, the wheel on my delivery car broke and the milk is going to spoil unless you guys drink it. Can you use it? And George is like, all right, there's milk. There's another story where he's traveling uh, and he needs to be in Canada for a speaking appointment. He spent 17 years of his life just doing, just touring the country, touring Europe, America, even went as far as China, telling people what God could do by answering prayer. And he's supposed to be in Canada. And the captain meets him and says, the reason that we've stopped is because there's a fog and it is unsafe for us to, to, to go into the fog. And so you're going to miss your meeting. And George brings the captain down, uh, downstairs and, and he prays that God would lift the fog so that he could make it to the appointment so he could tell people about what God could do through prayer. And the captain's about to pray and George says, no, you're not allowed to pray. You don't believe in Jesus. This is, you know, uh, and, and not only that, I believe that God's already answered the prayer. And, and the captain walks upstairs and lo and behold, the fog's gone and, and he makes it to his appointment. And I, and I understand that this is like, what? What, what, what are you talking about, Charles? That it's so extravagant and it's so maybe outside of how God deals with us in our everyday lives that we think, I'm not sure if I believe that or I, 
I'm not sure what, what that means for me. Uh, if you're interested, George Mueller is all over, is very easily uh, found out about. I would recommend you reading just a short book about his answers to prayer, where it's just excerpts from his diary, where he says the way that God's answered his prayers. A fantastic read. But I want us, through the example of, of the many Bible characters, through the example of Jesus, through the example of George Mueller, and by the teaching of Jesus to be encouraged in two things. To be encouraged that our God is a good God. He loves us so much that he died for us. And that good God can be petitioned by prayer. Does it, is it always going to work out the way you want it to? Probably not. Does that mean we should give up on praying? Absolutely not. We pray. We pray because God uses prayer to do fantastic things in us and for us. In a little bit, we're going to be remembering how good God is. That we're remembering the price that he paid in order to secure a relationship, in order to make it possible for us to have a relationship with God. We take communion at the end of every 613 in order to remember what Jesus has done for us. And if Jesus was willing to shed his blood and to have his body broken for our sakes, how much more would he give us everything that we need?